I really believe that if you're doing what God calls you to do and you're not worried about a lot of things that God didn't call you to do, you're going to be having a lot of fun. I think it's one of the best criteria to discern whether or not you're keeping in step with the Spirit is are you having a good time? Oh, the Christianity is you know, full of a lot of hard stuff, tough stuff, worrisome stuff or whatever, but when all is said and done, if you're leaning on the Spirit and walking with the Spirit and just enjoying relaxing in God's grace and you don't get uptight when you forget some lyrics, who really, really cares? You're going to have a good time. Because most of the stuff we get uptight about in church anyways is not, not godly stuff. I, I just cracked up. I, I'll, Alex is over there. I'm hearing a lot of chords and not very many lyrics, you know, when they're in the prelude. Some of you weren't here during the prelude, but maybe that's a good thing. But uh, I finally look out there like, like, Alex, what are you doing? And he looks over and he goes, I'm spacing out. <laughs> I just said, just tell him that and let's go into the worship service. <clears throat> but I, I, you know, there's a number of times where I space out. But I don't have any chords to strum. It's like, what was I going to say next? We're continuing our series here on, uh, what were we talking about again? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> on, uh, on building the church. And we're kind of giving a panoramic vision for what we believe God has called Woodland Hills Church to be. We've been looking at the book of Acts, the birthday of the church, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, to discern what is the paradigm for what a church should be as uh, drawn out in Acts chapter 2 which is the birthday of the church. And the fundamental assumption we've had throughout this whole study is that um, if you want to enjoy the power that the church in the book of Acts enjoyed and you want to have the effectiveness for the kingdom of God that the church in the book of Acts had, you need to look like the book of Acts church looked. And what we've seen in the last four weeks is uh, that among the things that characterized the book of Acts church was that they, number one, above all else, wanted to follow the Spirit, not their own strategy plans or whatever. They wanted to follow the Spirit and wait on the Spirit and be empowered by the Spirit. We've seen that the church in the book of Acts wasn't run by one person who was sort of the religious official and authority over the whole thing, but it was run by a plurality of leaders, and that's true throughout the whole New Testament. We've seen... Very importantly, that these leaders' job, the job of these leaders, wasn't to do religious stuff. It wasn't to do the spiritual stuff. Rather, their main job was to equip, empower, and motivate people in the body of Christ to use their gifts to do the kingdom of God stuff. They were the equippers. You've seen how that got reversed around the 3rd and 4th century and has continued on to this day as we've developed a sort of dysfunctional dependency upon members of the professional religious guild, the reverends, the fathers, the priests, the pastors, the religious guild, the religious professionals, and now the general Christian populace has the assumption that their job is just to financially support the professionals. But in the New Testament, it wasn't like that at all. We've also seen that they were devoted to one another, that they were committed to fellowship with one another. There's 57 one-anothers in the New Testament, verses that talk about how we should be towards one another. Most of the mandates to believers, in fact, involve what we do with one another. 57 of them. Love one another, build up one another, speak truth to one another, one another, one another. But you can't do that on a Sunday morning, we've seen. On a Sunday morning, we get together and we're basically strangers, and that's a normal thing. But there needs to be a time where we can one another one another. And that is in the small groups, in times when, they meet, when we meet in households. And the main thrust of the church is not the Sunday morning experience, though that should be great and wonderful when Christians come together, as the Book of Acts church did in the temple courts, and you praise God and whatever. That's great. But the, the, the real meat of the Christian life and growth in the Christian life comes outside of the Sunday morning experience. 
And Christians who are following this pattern throughout church history, addicted to passivity because they think that it's the religious professional's job to do the Christian stuff, never have the opportunity to move into the kind of power and growth and joy that God wants Christians to have. But Christianity was never meant to be a spectator kind of sport. Sport, religion, whatever it is. This morning I want to talk about another element of the devotion that characterized the early church. They were devoted to one another. They were devoted to worship. Next week we'll talk about how they were devoted to prayer. This morning I want to read Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And bring out one other element. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It says in verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let's pray. Lord, your word is the word of life. And your, Lord is a, your word, Lord, is the source of, of all real wisdom. Your word, Lord God, is your word to us. And in a world full of other words, how desperately we need to hear this word. And yet, Lord, I individually, most of us here this morning, and the church certainly by and large has taken your word for granted. It's become archaic and antique, and we don't pay a whole lot of attention to it most of the time in our life. But Lord, your promise is that the Spirit will cause the Word to come alive. And so I pray, God, this morning that that would happen. Take my words, Lord, and infuse them with your Spirit. Give them energy. Give them life. Give them heat, Lord God, to cut through the calluses that maybe are on our mind and our heart. And make it come alive, Lord, that we could become devoted to your Word and in love with your Word. There is no other word to go to. In your name we pray. Amen. When Jesus was here on earth, he was the Son of God. And being the Son of God, he knew how to plan for the future. And he knew that he would not be around while the church was being birthed and throughout the duration of the church. He was going to be in, in absentee in terms of his physical body while the, while the church was being birthed and while the church was uh, growing. So he made preparations for that. He knew the church would need a foundation, something stable that it could go by so that it didn't become watered down with all sorts of odd, strange, weird ideas. For that reason, we find throughout the Gospels that the Lord authorized his disciples to be his spokesperson for the foundation of the church. You find, for example, in John chapter 14 through uh, John chapter 17, the Lord saying things like this to his disciples, When I leave, the Holy Spirit will come. And when the Holy Spirit comes... He'll bring into your memory all that I've said. He'll bring into your memory all that I've done. He'll teach you and, and lead you in what you should say. And in John 17, verse 20, he says that the world will believe on me through your word. And what, in fact, the Lord was doing there was he was pre-authorizing the disciples' writings to have the same authority that he himself, God in flesh, had. And the writings of the apostles combined with the writings of the Old Testament, constitute God's word, the whole of God's counsel for us today. Given that the disciples had that kind of authority, it's not surprising to find that the early church was characterized by a devotion to God's word. They devoted themselves to it. The Greek word has several connotations. It means basically this. They pledged themselves to God's word. Or they submitted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They came underneath the apostles' teachings, or they gave themselves or surrendered themselves over to, to be devoted to, to surrender to, to submit to, to come underneath. We know that the early church was largely characterized just by this. 
an intense, hot devotion to God's word. In fact, we've got a pagan source that confirms this. In the early 2nd century, there was a governor named Pliny. And he had caught some Christians. Uh, it was capital punishment in ancient Rome not to worship the emperor. And these people would not worship the emperor. They said, only Jesus is our Lord. We're not going to worship the emperor. And you were put to death if that happened. But these people were so nice, Pliny didn't know quite what to do with them. So he writes his superior, and we have a copy of this letter. And he describes these Christians. He ends up killing them, but he describes them. And he says, these, these Christians, they get together. Now note this. He says, first of all, they get together every morning in one, in one another's homes. This is written about 110 A.D., 70 years after Pentecost. They, they get together in one another's homes. And they eat together. They have breakfast together. And they pray for one another. They worship Jesus as their God. And then he says, and then they just read Scripture. They sit around and read Scripture. Wholly devoted to the Word of God. If we are going to have the power that the church in the book of Acts had, and we want that, we desire it. It's our passion. We're going to have to look like the church in the book of Acts looked. And that means if we want to have the kind of ministry and the kind of lives that the Christians in the early church had and the book of Acts had, we're going to have to be devoted to God's word, submitted to God's word, pledged to God's word, coming underneath God's word, giving ourselves over to God's word. There's two implications that flow from that that I want to talk about this morning. The first has to do with our relationship to our culture. The second has to do with our relationship to ourselves. First of all, concerning our culture. We have got to resolve it in our minds and just know this for sure. That if we're going to be wholly devoted to God's word, submitted to God's word because it's the word of God, we are going to go against the general grain, the general tendencies, the movements, the thought patterns of our culture. If we're, if we're going to be devoted to God's word, we're going to have to come into conflict with what characterizes the general attitude, atmosphere, mentality, and spiritual disposition of the culture in which we live. We're going to have to, in other words, be counter-cultural against cultural Christians. Our age, if it's an age of anything, is characterized by an incredible confidence on the part of people that they can, on their own reasoning capacities, figure things out. Our age is an age in which we believe, and this goes all the way back to the scientific revolution, it's an age in which we believe that uh, the human mind is the only way to find truth and that only what you figure out on your own, only what seems commonsensical to you, only what you can prove by your own senses and by your own thinking, only what you can make sense out of with your own theorizing, only that should be believed to be true. We live in, a, in an age of intense autonomy where the individual believes that they have the power and the right and the need to, on their own, define what is true and define what is false, and on their own, define what is right and define what is wrong. We live in an age of moral and intellectual relativism. And by that I mean that, every, that the, the common assumption of the atmosphere in which we breathe is that every individual has to define truth for themselves and define morality for themselves. So what is true for me might not be true for you. What is wrong for me not, might not be wrong for you. What is right for me might not be right for you. It's all an individual thing. It's all how you feel on the inside. You've got to find your own inner wisdom, your own inner truth, your own inner reasoning. Find your own little path. Carve it out for yourself. And no one, not anybody, not anything, present, past, or future, not even a Bible, has the right to tell you 
what is true or what is not true, what is right, what is wrong. What are you, something out of the Middle Ages, some kind of barbaric, narrow-minded people who just don't get it? And this message is so prevalent. We really are living in an age where there is systematic propaganda to speak this message. And I don't want to sound paranoid about the thing, but the fact of the matter is, is that it's very hard to watch TV for any length of time and not have this message in some way communicated. Or to go to the movie theater and not have this message communicated. Most of what you read, most of what you hear, the songs you listen to, in one way or another communicate this relativistic message. It's a matter of mass propaganda. I'm not saying there's someone, some human being behind the whole thing's conniving it, but I do believe there's a spiritual being behind the scenes conniving it, and it's not the Holy Spirit. I don't think Stalin or Lenin or Khrushchev could have come close to doing as good a job in indoctrinating people with regard to this message as our culture has in fact done. It's so subtle. And there is a way, the, the Bible says in Proverbs 14, 12, that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is destruction. And this message gets conveyed so often, so repeatedly, and so subtly that it just seems self-evident to people. It seems self-evident. They don't... And they believe they're being open-minded for having it. They believe that they're being enlightened and being smart for having it. Everyone has to find their own way. You have to define truth for yourself. I'm okay, you're okay. That's just... And it really seems like it's an intelligent thing, and anyone who doesn't agree with that is kind of barbaric. And it's mass propaganda. I'd go so far as to say that it's subtle brainwashing. Let me say three things about this real quick. Number one, this is a doctrine. Relativism is a doctrine. It is a doctrine that is as authoritarian and as narrowly defined as any other particular doctrine you could ever believe. Usually it is held in a mindless fashion. Spoke with a person just uh, uh, this last week. I have like two weeks ago. Young man who says, you know, I believe in, in, in the Bible, but I'm a very open-minded person. I'm a very broad-minded person. I said, well, that's good. Yeah, that's good. I, I think that's really great. And part of the job of being a, in a liberal arts college is we want to make you broad-minded. Well, what exactly do you mean by that? And this person said, well, I believe the Bible is, is true. It's God's word for me, for me. But I, I can't say that it's God's word for everybody. And, and I believe that, you know, some of the things the Bible talks about, premarital sex, whatever, it, it, that's, that's okay for some people, but not necessarily for everybody. And, and homosexuality and, and a number of other issues. Everyone has to find truth on their own. Everyone, and she starts kind of playing, this person starts playing out the kind of propaganda and indoctrination that's been going on. The Pied Piper of our culture plays his little fiddle and, and, and everyone follows in line. And this person's thinking had to a larger even conform to this Pied Piper. I said, okay, I understand what you're saying, but what I want to know is why do you think you're being op open-minded or broad-minded for holding that position? Everyone holds that position. How is your position, you, you know, to say everyone defines truth on their own, how is that different than saying not everyone defines truth on their own? You may be right or wrong, I may be right or wrong. It seems to me that the doctrines are equally narrow because they rule out all other possibilities. What makes a person open-minded is not what they believe. What makes a person open-minded is how they believe it. And so I said, you know, I've, I've researched the thing, I've studied it, I have a lot of reasons for my belief, a lot of evidence for my belief. What evidence is there for your belief? What, why do you think this? Oh, what proof is there of it? Uh, you know, what insight leads you to this conclusion? The person really didn't know. But it just seems so self-evident, so intolerant not to agree when a person has something that seems self-evident to them, that is one sign that they're brainwashed. This is a doctrine that is narrow, that is intolerant of alternatives. And as most of the people who hold it don't think about it. It's never been proven. There's no evidence for it. But they do it because 
It's suddenly been eroding into their mind. If there was 100 people alone in our culture who believed this relativistic doctrine and no one else did, we'd think that they belonged to some kind of mindless, brainwashing cult. Because there's 100 million people, we think it's called open-mindedness. But it's no different, you see. A second thing about this, this, uh, this doctrine is this. It's not only a narrow doctrine, but it's an inconsistent doctrine. When I say that all truth is relative, you know all truth is relative? Maybe you pick up on it right away. I'm saying an absolute truth that isn't relative. And therefore, if what I'm saying is true, what I'm saying is false. It's called a self-refuting statement. I didn't get that one. How, how about uh, <laughs> ontologically, metaphysically speaking, it's a self if I say everybody's got to define truth on their own, the question is, is that a truth that I should define on my own? You made it sound like everyone's got to define truth on their own, but if that's true, then you don't have the right to say that everyone has to define truth on their own. <laughs> it's an inconsistent, self-contradictory doctrine that if you think about it for very long, you see that it's self-refuting. And that's why it's impossible to live this thing consistently, and no one lives it consistently. No one, but no one, lives this relativistic doctrine Consistently. They think they believe it because they've been brainwashed into, into believing it, but they don't live it consistently. Again, just last week, I was at a supper table with a bunch of people that I hardly knew, but we got into this discussion of some things, and this one lady began to play out the Pied Piper. She began to just sort of say, feeling quite enlightened about things, about what she thought about matters. And you see, everyone's got to define truth on their own. It's, that, say, it's like a tape recording. Well, you see, it's everyone has to personally define it. Do -da -do -da -da -da. There's really no way of ever deciding these things. Pied Piper. That's not surprising. Feeling open-minded for thinking that. But then we got on another issue, the women's issue. And this lady turned into a preacher that made me envy. She got going. It is morally wrong and morally disgusting and reprehensible what India is doing to women today. And it's morally wrong and, 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 and reprehensible what's happening in some African tribes as they circumcise very painfully these young little girls because it's some man's whim to do it. Patriarchalism gone rampant. She might as well have said it was demon-filled. In fact, she says that even in America, uh, you know, what's going on with women in America is wrong and unjustified and immoral and terrible. And I could give an applause to that. But the question is, what happened to the individual feel, find your own wisdom, personal truth on the inside, got to work it out on your own kind of doctrine? All of a sudden, here it becomes very absolute. You're following me. And it's not surprising that you can't live this out consistently because the doctrine itself is inherently contradictory. But people don't believe it because they think about it. It's just part of our culture. It's part of the atmosphere. It's pollution all around us. And we play to the Pied Piper. Oh, yeah, everything's wrong. The final thing about this doctrine is this. It is self-destructive. It is, it, it is the surest prescription for a cultural destruction that I can possibly think of. Anthropologists have seen this. We study the rise and fall of, of different cultures. What holds a culture together is its, is its shared value system. It's the morality, shared morality, that is the glue that holds together any culture, any society. It's what they have in common in terms of what they believe is right and wrong and what they have in common in terms of what they believe is true and false that keeps a society together. And when you let loose this idea and, and use mass propaganda, and we're the only culture in history aside from ancient India, that's ever believed this, the way we are now. But when you let loose this idea that everything goes, everyone defines their own truth, you just, you're, you're exploding the culture. The Bible has a, 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 at one point in the book of Judges says that everyone in Israel did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone, oh, this is what's right to me, this is what's right to me, here's how I define truth, here's how I define truth. And destruction was brought upon them. 
And so it is in our culture, and I believe that we are at this point where we're seeing the culture frayed and polarized and fragmented because there's the, the, the depth of our shared values and perceptions about what is right and wrong and true and false is becoming frayed at the seams. You know, I, let me just give one example of this. I hate to always pick on sex, but it's, it's so clear, so I'm going to pick on sex again. You can say, shout from the housetops, shout from the TV screens, write in the newspapers, come across in all the movies, shouting this kind of message, propaganda, that sex is a biological thing that is actually morally neutral. You see, it's just biological, simply biological. Now, people may have some subjective feelings and preferences about the thing, you know, but no one has a right to tell, you know, another person what's right and wrong about it. It's really kind of a subjective thing, and we just kind of have to understand that. It's all relative. You know, everyone has to define it. You know, you get the point. You can do that, but you cannot do that with the consequences of saying that. When you have everyone doing what is right in their own eyes in terms of defining sexual ethics, one of the consequences is that we might say today that there's an incredible AIDS crisis that's going on, and there's not a whole lot relative about that. That's absolute. Either you're dying or you're not. We've got about 30% plus kids born in our culture outside of wedlock to single parents. That has consequences in how they're raised without a father or whatnot. We've got a, a, a juvenile criminal rate that's skyrocketing, and there's not a whole lot relative about that. There's nothing really subjective about that. Those are statistics. Because you're going against God's created nature. And anytime you go against God's created nature, you're going to screw things up. You're going to screw the family up and individuals up and the culture up. And that's the definition of sin. And it's not a matter of subjective women preference. The reason why God gives us his word is so that we be freed from all this subjective women preference stuff so that we can see something about what really is right and wrong. But this is a, a, a mass propaganda. It's a, it's a Stalinist, Khrushchev kind of thing. People are inebriated with it. And what has to really concern us is that it even makes inroads in the church. It, it has made great inroads in the church. And I'm not just talking about, about left-wing, liberal, mainline Christianity that has really been pretty much playing to the Pied Piper and been clones of the culture for the last 30 years. In evangelicalism, this thinking has made inroads. We don't say it out loud because we've got a tradition against saying that out loud. But there is an increasing widespread opinion in, in the minds of people where they would say that the Bible is true, it's God's word up to a point, and I decide what that point is. When, it's, when it feels nice, when it feels right, when it's convenient, when it doesn't ask for much, when it doesn't cause any, any awkwardness in my life, when it doesn't evoke any change, it's God's word. Oh, it's wonderful. I feel good about it. But then when all of a sudden maybe it makes claims on my life, requires some change, maybe it requires a change in the way we think, Maybe it means going against the cultural propaganda that, we, that, that we're a part of. All of a sudden, well, who can really understand God's word anyways? We have a church that is increasing, and I just want to say this out loud, not to indict or anything like that, but just say it out loud. A church that is increasingly afraid of saying truthfully and forthrightly what God thinks about certain kind of subjects. A church that's increasingly losing its spine is becoming gutless. Because you don't want to offend anybody. You, you, you don't want to make anyone mad. You might lose some converts, you know, and after all, everyone kind of has to define truth on their own. There we go, Pied Piper. Get deer eyes and just put on the tape recording. And what's really concerning is that this goes under the name of grace. We must be gracious. And that has come in some circles to mean, to some extent, I'm okay, you're okay. You find your little way forward, I'll find my way a little forward. And as long as we're nice to each other, we call that grace. That is not grace. 
That is cruelty. Our culture calls it nice, but it's really cruel. If I got a, a friend who's an alcoholic, the worst thing I could ever do to him is to convince him that, hey, you know, uh, you know where you're at, you know, that's fine, it's wonderful, just don't worry about a thing, just kind of go on. Invite him out to a drink. That, a friend, what is love, confronts the thing, intervenes on the thing. Loves the person, but says, you know what, we can do better than this. We need to do better than this. Man, you, there's a sickness here. Grace doesn't pretend like there's not a sickness. What grace does is it offers health in contrast to sickness. Grace is not a matter of loving everything and accepting everything. Grace is a matter of loving everyone and accepting everyone. But it wouldn't be grace if it accepted everything. That'd be cruelty. All sin to some degree destroys us individually or destroys our families or destroys our culture. And grace is graciously confronting that, saying out loud what's really going on. This relativism stuff is, is cruel because... At least people where they're at. What grace says is this. Grace says, God's grace says, wherever you're at here this morning, whatever you've gone through, whatever your past, it doesn't matter what it is. You're loved by God and you're loved by us and we'll embrace you and we'll come around you. And grace says, you know what, when you fall, we'll be there to pick you up. Uh, grace says that we're not going to think better of you or worse of you because of what's going on or what's going on in you. No one gets points for their good behavior around here. Grace says, as you are, I love you. But grace doesn't say, you know what, that's all there is to be said about it. Grace says there's health in, in contrast to your sickness. Here's what we can be moving towards. Grace says there's freedom from what you're in bondage to. Grace helps people by using the word sin. Nathan was David's best friend when he came out and said, Thou art the man who's committed the adultery. You're the one who murdered the person. He was doing David a favor. But he wasn't, in terms of the propagandic sap that we have going on in our culture, he wasn't being nice. Well, who gave you the right? God? Well, how do you define God? I define it my way. It's creeping into the church. That leads me to my second point that I've got to do quite fast. This has implications for how we relate to ourselves as a church. We're going to have to be against the culture because this, this cultural propaganda is all over the place. It's not popular to submit, to, to be devoted to, to be pledged to God's word. It's not popular to do that. And you're going to be going against some things that maybe even don't feel right when you do that because we're all, to some degree, infected by this doctrine. What it means for the church is this, and here's a word that I just kind of got, and I just want to lay it out here. I think it summarizes very well everything we want to say about our relationship to God's word. The phrase I got was, all of God's word and nothing but God's word. All of God's word and nothing but God's word. The first statement of faith that we have in our statement of faith at, at Woodland Hills is that we believe the Bible is God's infallible word, the sole authority for believers in terms of faith and our practice. And what that means concretely is this, that everything that goes forth from this pulpit has to be reflecting the whole counsel of God and only the counsel of God. There's a lot of good books around, a lot of good ideas around, a lot of neat, interesting topics we could discuss. I've got a lot of opinions on a lot of different subjects, and you know what? Most of them are right. But it's not my job here to, to, it's not my job here to be spouting that. What feeds us, what, what propels us, what makes us grow, what challenges us, what convicts us is God's Word. And nothing but God's word and all of God's word. The foundation of the church is this devotion to the apostles' teaching. This is what we come underneath, not some political party. This is what we come underneath, not some social agenda. This is what we come underneath, not this little opinion and this little hobby horse or what have you. We come underneath the word of God, submitted to the word of God, devoted to the word of God, sold out and abandoned to the word of God, all the word of God and nothing but the word of God. 
And that's where our life lies. If we get off track on some other tangent, nothing good will come of it. And let me, in fact, let me say this. The only authority I or Steve or Paul or anybody who's ever going to be in this pulpit has to speak, the only right we have to be listened to is the extent to which we borrow it from the Bible. We borrow authority from God's Word to the degree that, that, that what we say lines up with God's Word. To that extent, believe it. To the degree that it doesn't, you call us on the carpet. You hold us accountable. We all need accountability. And if we're getting off on some weird tangent or our own little opinions or what have you, you hold us accountable. Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, that even if an angel from heaven, an angel who radiates light, an angel with nice big wings and a halo over his head, 900 feet tall, appears to you in the middle of the night and starts teaching you some doctrine other than the one that the apostles teach, Paul says, let him be anathema, let him be cursed, run the other way. There's no foundation, Paul says, that can be laid other than the one that's already been laid, and that is the word of God. All of God's word and nothing but God's word you know, all the things we've been talking about in the church, about how we've got this dysfunctional leadership, and, and we got off on, on, you know, the reason why the church today looks very different than the church in the book of Acts is because this devotion to, pledged to, submitted to, surrendered to, coming underneath God's word model was not carried out consistently. We borrow from this, we borrow from that, we have a little of this, a little of that, we start mixing the whole thing up, and God only knows what you're going to come out with. The resolve, the passion of our hearts must be that if we're going to be an Acts church, it's got to be an Acts that's founded on Scripture and nothing else. I got to footnote everything I was just going to say. Oh, I just got to say this. I mean, there is so much stuff going on now about marketing the church and pastor being a CEO, and this is a new wave in evangelicalism. Give me a Scripture verse and we'll listen to it. Otherwise, okay, it has implications, personally has implications for us personally, not just in the pulpit, but personally. And I just want to ask, put this out here, and let it, let it land however it's going to land. To be devoted to, submitted to, surrendered to God's word, where are you in terms of your thinking on it? And I say that not to indict, accuse, make anyone feel bad. I'm not trying to be that nice. But unless you know a sickness, you can never offer health. And so we've got to ask ourselves, take our pulse and say, have we been infected? To what degree do we march to the Pied Piper? There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the way thereof is destruction. The thing is, it feels right. You know, with this propaganda, the, the, the brainwashing, the erosion in the mind, it seems so self-evident. But of course, if you're an enlightened, rational Western person, how could you possibly be so narrow as to think that this is God's word and nothing else is God's word? It, it is a way that seems right, but the end thereof is destruction. Where are you with it? Are you... Are you the kind that says the Bible's true, I like it, I like to hear it, up to a point? And when it disagrees, it's no longer God's word, which means it's not God's word, it's not an authority in your life. You're the authority, and you tell the Bible when it can and cannot speak, which means, basically, it's a footnote to what you would have believed anyways. Where are you with that? Let me just say this. If you want the, if you want the goods of the Christian life, there's this pool here. See, it's called the goods of the Christian life. The Bible calls it in Ephesians 1, our inheritance. Here it is, this pool, this pool. 
And a lot of us, we, we, we dabble our toes in it a little bit. We walk around and we're all hot, you know. We, we want to jump in, but it's kind of like, eh, is that for me? I don't know if that's for me. If you want to dive into the goods, the Christian inheritance, and you want to begin to walk in some of the power that Christians had in the first century, begin to experience some of the dynamism, the reality of God, the reality of the relationship, begin to enjoy some of that peace that, the, that God promises believers and the joy God promises believers, the tranquility and the power that God promises believers. If you want that thing, there's only one way that I know that you can get it, and that is to surrender. Surrender. Come underneath it. Devote yourself to God's word, and you say, God, you are true, and let every man a liar. Let my own brain be a liar, but this is going to be the authority of my life. To make Jesus Christ Lord of our life is to submit to the lordship of Christ, which is to submit to the ones that he has authorized to speak for him in the church, and that is the Bible. Surrender to it. Devote to it. Pledge to it. Come underneath it. Let God be true, and every man a liar. In fact, the only way, the only way that you're ever going to fight off the propaganda that's all around, the relativism that's all around, the only way that your mind is not going to be infected and saturated with and even intoxicated with the Pied Piper's tune is if your mind is given over to the Word of God. Something's going to fill, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, and I don't want to say that you're, you know, our, our minds are vacuums, but nature abhors a vacuum, and if it's not filled with the Word of God, it's going to be filled with a lot of other things. Do we think like Scripture thinks? That's the, that's the thing. Paul says in Romans chapter, two, verse, chapter 12, verse 2, be don't be any longer conformed to the pattern of this world, the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed to the pied pipers of your culture. Don't be conformed to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. A practice that you have commanded throughout the whole Bible is to meditate on God's word. Read it, Psalms 119, verse 27 through 40, just as one example of it. David says, I meditate on your word day and night. My mind dwells upon your law. I delight in your law. I obey your statutes. I'm wiser than my enemies because your word is hidden in my heart. To be given over to the word of God, the value is you begin to hear a different tune than the Pied Piper's tune. You begin to think like God thinks and see things the way God sees things, and that's when the goods of the Christian life, the inheritance, begins to be yours but it means coming underneath it. It means being devoted to it. It means going against the culture. Bring every thought, Paul says. Second, God right now is just kind of barraging me with these scriptures. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Bring every thought captive unto Jesus Christ. Every thought. It's to the degree to which we got thoughts that are running around outside of Christ, that our lives begin to suffer because of it. I want to say one final word, and I promise it will take one minute. Well, two <laughs> It's just this. It's just this. I need to balance what, everything I just said. I need to balance it. Not compromising at all. Balancing. There's a world of difference between balancing and compromising. And that is this. My, I, I gave you my heart and what the heart of Woodland Hills is about God's word, what our passion is to be founded on the word of God. But I've got to tell you this. My life doesn't line up with that. Okay, Confess sins to one another. I've had times in my life, and I'll probably have them again, where I got real radical doubts about things. I, faith isn't an easy thing for me. In fact, it's a real difficult thing for me. It's just not my gift. And uh, I struggle with it. There's times where I go through doubt, where I don't see God's love. I don't, I, I, this doesn't click with me, and I don't, see, I don't see God's mercy, and I don't see God's power. There's times in my life where, where I fall short of this. In fact, quite frequently, fall short of that. I want to be submitted, devoted to, pledged, and given over to God's word, but, and my heart is, but my life, is to some degree conform to the pattern of this world, and I fall short. And what I need when that happens, 
There's the other part of what Acts 2 talks about. They were devoted to one another in love. And that's where grace comes in. What I need is not people, when I go through periods like this, and you go through them too, I, need, I don't need people that are going to say, oh, Greg, you got doubts? That's okay where you're at. You know, who really knows what is true after all? I don't need that. You're just telling an alcoholic to have another drink. I don't need that. And I don't need people to say when I fail, well, you know, whimsy, nimsy, wally, woo, you know, who really, you know, who, you know, who can really do good, whatever. I don't know, Pied Piper stuff. What I need is people who will say, Greg, you're going through doubt. You know what? We still love you. The Lord still loves you. We're going to encourage you. And remind me of the truth. That's what I need. That's what grace is. And when I have failings, I need people who will say, that is really as sick as it looks. This is bad. But you know what? It doesn't affect God's love for you. It doesn't affect our love for you. That's where grace comes around. The Bible says in John 1, 18, that Jesus Christ came to, re came to reveal, reveal the glory of God. You know what the glory of God was? The Bible says it was full of grace and truth. Those two things must be forever wedded in our midst. Grace and truth. Loving one another. Right there. We need to be devoted to one another in love. But we... That devotion can't be conditioned upon how perfectly our lives line up with that. And in saying that, that doesn't endorse at all the Pied Piper's doctrine. It just means our love is unconditional, as is our devotion to God's word. But our lives are screwed up. And that's what we're going towards. That's what we're going towards. This needs to be a community where we are as gracious as we are committed to the truth. As gracious as we are committed to the truth. And we need to be unconditionally and passionately devoted to both. Let's stand and close in prayer. And I want, to, I want you to know that the altar, the altar, I always call this an altar, the front of the auditorium is open. It may be that you're struggling with an area of your life that you are very aware of is not in line with God's word and you need power to change that. I encourage you to come forward and pray with some people who will be up here. And maybe that you understand that your mind, you love the Lord, but your mind has just been infected by the culture around you and you want your mind to be the mind of Christ. I encourage you to come forward and get prayer. Or maybe that you're here this morning and you've never, you've never devoted yourself to Jesus Christ, submitted yourself to Jesus Christ and made him Lord of your life. And I really encourage you to come forward and join in prayer. Even if you have to wait a minute or two because other people are praying, it is worth it to do it. The front is open. Let's pray. Father, your word is the word of life. It's a lamp unto our, our feet. It is in, 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 in embodied with your wisdom and your power. I pray, God, that as we go forth from this place, our devotion would be to have our minds absorbed with your word. And God, I pray that in doing that, you'd protect us from the propaganda of our culture. That you would put on us like a helmet as we go forth from this place, a protection, a spiritual protection from the one who you yourself call the God of this age, the principality and power of the air, who is really the mastermind, the Stalin behind this propaganda. Lord, we don't want to be brainwashed with filth of the pattern of the world, we want to be brainwashed with your word. Wash our brains, Lord. We'll go forth from this place. In your name we pray. Amen.